the veil of the temple. You've already noticed, no doubt, the title of that lesson, and I hope for the next few moments tonight we can give some appreciation to and some consideration of that interesting structure. Because in so doing, we'll find before our lesson concludes a number of principles and rather profound truths greatly benefiting you and me. I'd like to divide the lesson, if I might, in the following way. First of all, giving a bit of introduction and then some consideration to the structure of that tabernacle so that we can appreciate what it is that's being described in that verse that Brother Colonel read just a few moments ago. It is with that in mind that these introductory thoughts will be our first ones for the moment. You'll notice on this particular slide some introductory information about some general terms. Isn't it true that from as early as the book of Exodus, we notice an emphasis and in fact a notable place held in relation to the tabernacle. It occupied a central role, of course, in ancient Israel. It was not only the place, of course, of their worship, but it was the centerpiece of the entire encampment. Later, we remember that there was a temple that was constructed, and of course it too occupied a rather significant role in the later Old Testament period. In fact, it was to the matter of temple that even the New Testament offers an interesting degree of significance. Isn't it true that both in the gospel accounts as well as in the book of Acts, we find reference frequently to the temple? Surely in light of those things... It brings us to notice that in many ways the gem of the New Testament, some have called it the gem of the Bible, the book of Hebrews, it lifts to an incredible height the nature and the consideration of that temple as well as the blessings you and I enjoy in Jesus. Tonight we'll frequently be turning to that book. As we close that slide, may I just ask that we use a moment then this evening to study about some of these features concerning not only the tabernacle, but specifically the veil. This next particular slide. Is this one. This particular slide you perhaps would appreciate rather quickly, and some of these initial thoughts are just an overview of much of that detail in the book of Exodus. The God of heaven gave, gave instructions, gave orders relative to the building of a tabernacle. You and I remember it was a portable place of worship. It was able to move with them during the period of wilderness wandering. And after they arrived at the land of Canaan, it of course could be stationary if needed. But of course it too was still able to move from place or from city to city. You'll notice in particular as you come to the top of that slide, it still is an overwhelming truth that God cares a great deal about details. All you and I need to do is recollect the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus when He gave specific instruction as to how the furnishings of this tabernacle were to be made. The people weren't left to build what they wanted, to worship how they wished. God even told them the furniture to be used how it was to be constructed, the size and dimension of it, how that tabernacle was to be overlaid, how it was to be moved and set up from place to place. You may notice in particular that there were two especial rooms inside that tabernacle. 
This next slide, as you perhaps noticed quickly in passing a moment ago, showed a picture. If I could revisit that particular slide... Well, apparently, once you arrive at a certain place, there's no going back. At any rate, that is a rough picture that shows a cutaway view of the interior of the tabernacle. You'll notice there were two rather sizable rooms, but one was larger than the other one. In that first room, the holy place, it had only one entrance. It was from the east. That easterly direction is roughly where the priest is standing there as you look from the bottom right of that particular slide. And as you entered it, there were three pieces of furniture. To the priest's right would have been the table, as you can see, of showbread. To the priest's left was the golden candlestick. And straight in front of him would have been the altar of incense. Those were the only pieces of furniture in that room. Each one was terribly symbolic of their relationship to God. The nature of what was understood in terms of faithfulness, all three of them had a remarkable imprint. But yet you may notice one thing rather immediate. Directly in front was a blue curtain. The Old Testament called it a veil. That particular curtain divided that first room, the holy place, from that room that was beyond it the most holy place. Inside that most holy place, you'll notice really but one piece of furniture. There was the Ark of the Covenant in the center of the room, and on top of it was the mercy seat. And you'll notice that mercy seat was the singular place wherein the God of Israel promised to meet with ancient Israel, according to Exodus 25, verses 10 and following. And so as you look at that particular slide you'll appreciate immediately that those two rooms were extremely significant. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to consider that some additional details were these. If that interior place was where the God of heaven promised to meet with Israel, wouldn't it have been a lovely blessing to be able to go and visit in that place, maybe sit there for hours on end? But there was another thought that mustn't be forgotten. Entrance into these places was rather highly restricted. Entrance into the holy place was only for the priests. And quite frankly, entrance into the most holy place was only for the high priest. Only he, only that man, and only then once per year could he enter into that most holy place. Would you ponder the significance of that a moment? Only the, most, only the high priest... And only one day a year could he enter into that most holy place. Only on that day of atonement, the seventh month, tenth day, could he pull that curtain back, that veil, and actually proceed into the most holy place. And only then could he do so using, of course, the opportunity to take blood with him. Surely in light of those things, let's develop some additional thoughts about that particular matter tonight. That veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. You'll notice on this particular slide it has an appearance of blue. But this next slide I hope will have a few more details about it. God had stated what that veil was to be made of. 
Borrowing from Exodus chapter 26, we notice God detailed it was to be made of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. God had detailed that it was to have cherubims embroidered on it. This was, you see, not just an ordinary curtain. It was to be fashioned in a very careful way. It was to be made in the most exquisite of means. You'll notice nextly, you might appreciate God even dictated how it was to be affixed, or that is to say, how it was to be hung. Please notice this with me in passing. God had specified that four pillars of shittim wood were to be erected, and not only that, there was to be hooks of gold that were to be utilized for the support of that veil. Now already you can probably get a feeling about something. When you and I think about the curtains that may adorn your living room or your kitchen or perhaps some other place in your house, you likely don't imagine something requiring four pillars of wood to support it. And you likely aren't in a position to imagine that this curtain thus is quite like what we might easily envision today. This veil was a significant thing. It was a noteworthy and heavy tapestry. In addition to that, note what comes next. The tabernacle had a height such that the length of it would have been roughly 15 feet. In addition to that, you might appreciate immediately that our study would lead us to conclude it was a heavy item. It spanned from one wall to the other, and hence the width of it was also well known. Isn't it fascinating then to imagine a curtain 15 feet tall, 20 feet wide? And as you imagine that, again, it was sturdied with four pillars of shittim wood, pillars overlaid with gold, and furthermore, hooks of gold attached that tapestry, that veil to those pillars. And now, with those things in place, let's come to the bottom of that slide. Our comments, our notes so far have been with respect to the tabernacle. And yet the time came in the Old Testament when we appreciate this. Namely, David had a decision, he had a view toward the completion of a permanent place of worship. It was, of course, to be called the temple. And although David wished to build it, it was the will of God that David not do it. His son Solomon would be the one whom God would permit to construct that temple. As we arrive at the books of 1 Kings and later on also in the Chronicles, we learn some things like this. The temple constructed by Solomon was larger than that original tabernacle. The proportions, as near as I can tell, were roughly the same, but it was bigger. Forty-five feet tall that temple stood. You already gain a sense that whatever was that curtain separating the most holy place from the holy place in the temple must have been a rather sizable veil indeed. Not only 45 feet tall, 2 Chronicles 3.14 tell us that it was made also of fine blue and purple and other fine, fine linens like that. The bottom of that slide brings us to note this as well. Isn't it interesting that that temple was destroyed? Although it was constructed with the finest of means available to Solomon, although it was put together in a remarkable fashion, it didn't really stand all that long. Solomon completed it roughly about 920, 930 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar's troops raised it to the ground in 586. Surely, in light of those things, we notice 
2 Kings 25.9 gives us this rather sad refrain. We remember that Nebuchadnezzar looted it and took all the valuables out of it and then he burned it to the ground. Can you imagine that beautiful structure and all the exquisiteness that had been descriptive of it and yet it was now burned in shambles that would have included that fine veil. As we close that particular slide, you may notice later in the days of Ezra and others, another temple begun, was begun to be built. This one wasn't as exquisite and ornate as had, as had been the one in Solomon's day. Ezra 3 verse 12 tells us that even some of the older men who remember the former one actually wept when the foundation of this new one was laid. It might well be in light of those things that that brings us to the early New Testament days. That temple, you see, that had been rebuilt, it stood for quite some time, roughly half a millennium. And then that brings us to the record of the temple we consider in the New Testament. Herod. We all remember him. There are several Herods mentioned in the New Testament period. And yet, in order to gain the favor of the Jews... Herod built an extremely ornate and elaborate temple. He, in fact, renovated and added a great number of things to it, and this building was fine indeed. It is that building we find mentioned so often in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To give you some idea about how long it took, Herod's men were able to complete the major elements of it in about ten years. However, it took at least 46 years to build the whole thing because we notice in John chapter 2, verse 20, even in conversation with Jesus, there were those who said, 46 years it's been in the building. Imagine how fine a building it must have been, at least if laborers worked that long on it. And yet consider at least briefly some of the things to be noted about it. Now let me be quick to say the New Testament does not give us this next dimension. I've been able to find it in a number of other sources, but 60 feet tall is what Josephus said the interior of that temple was. Think about how high that was, six stories tall. Think about how large the curtain, the veil must have been in that temple that Herod built. 60 feet high, and not only that, Notice a few of the things at the bottom. Again, the New Testament does not say the details about that veil. Josephus, as well as some others, though, list these facts, these traditions with respect to it. First of all, Jewish tradition says that it was about as thick as a person's hand. Think about the kind of curtain that'd be if that was true. Not only that, it stood 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall. And in addition to that, it's often been said it took hundreds of priests simply to move it. It was so heavy. Fascinating to consider maybe the last one. According to Jewish tradition, the interwoven character of it was such that even a team of horses couldn't have ripped it asunder. Now again, let me be quick to say those statements are not in the Bible. Jewish tradition alone has asserted them, and perhaps there is some exaggeration to them. But the fact still remains, it's almost certain that that veil that was in that temple was an exceedingly impressive thing. 
It is with that in mind that lesson text for tonight comes back before us. Think about what it said again in such simplicity. Several times in the New Testament, these comments are found. May I invite you to listen again as I read Mark 15, verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. On that Thursday afternoon when our Savior breathed His last, while He was on that old rugged cross just outside Jerusalem, all three synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make a record of what I've just read. They all three point out that at 3 o'clock that afternoon, the very time when our Savior passed on, the very time when in fact the priests were actively making their sacrifices in the afternoon offerings, that veil, as thick as it was, as heavy as it was, as long as it was, as weighty as it was, it was ripped, not in a minor way, but literally torn in two parts, Mark told us. And it wasn't ripped from the bottom. It was ripped from the top. Now the fact of its height is rather well established. Sixty feet, imagine, and the earthquake couldn't have done it. Torn in two from top to bottom. Perhaps it's in light of that that I would invite you to notice several very brief lessons about the significance of this veil and the significance of its being rent. First of all, note the first one. What was it, according to the Hebrew writer, that that veil represented? What is a great lesson that might be immediately extracted from it? Let me read a passage or two from Hebrews chapter 9. The ninth chapter of Hebrews is a text filled with references to that old temple and the characteristic features of what it represented in the parts of it. Beginning in verse number 6, it reads like this. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But unto the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. We have an inspired commentary on the significance of what that veil represented. The Hebrew writer said the high priest alone could go into that most holy place and only then once a year. And the Holy Spirit was signifying something by that. Verse number 8 says, Signifying the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while that first tabernacle was still standing. May I submit to you that opening lesson? That veil was suggestive of the fact that the most clear and complete way into the very presence of God was not made manifest at the time that old veil was in place. You see, humankind was afflicted with sin, and there was not yet a complete and full way of guaranteed remission of it. The Old Testament had promised it, and there were many, who, of course, who had died in the centuries appreciating the fact that there was going to be remission. And the blood of the perfect one would flow backward to cover all their sins. 
But isn't it true that veil was indicative of the fact that they never knew the fullness of the blessing. All they could appreciate it was in the promise of the future. You and I have it in reality now. That veil's been rent. Entrance into the most holy place is now able to be appreciated by you and me. Isn't it fascinating then to notice quickly the second lesson? That veil also was clear-cut evidence for the fact that a better covenant was on, the, was on the horizon. A better covenant was coming. That old Mosaic law, it did what God wished for it to do. It was the very schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. It was, of course, that which was to hold sway until the seed should come, Galatians 3, verse 16. But surely in light of that, we read Hebrews chapter 8, which was a better covenant built on better promises. Aren't you thankful to live beneath the auspices of a better covenant? Aren't you thankful to enjoy the promises and blessings of a far greater covenant than that old one ever knew? Forgiveness of sin, you see, is something the old one could only point forward to. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39 tell us that. As you give thought to that second lesson, you and I have the sweetness of the high priest of whom we're now about to speak. How about lesson number three? That old high priest, you'll notice that he himself was a human and as such he had sin. First, he had to offer for his own sins before he could ever offer for the sins of anybody else. And therefore, Hebrews chapter 7 reminds us one of the first chores and exercises that was demanded of him was to make the appropriate sacrifice for his own sins. And yet you and I come today to consider Jesus Christ, the high priest of the New Testament era, perfect, sinless, godless, without mistake, error, or of any such sort. Think about the blessedness of our high priest. That old high priest was blessed with the opportunity one day a year to go through that veil, to pass to the other side in the very nature of the presence of the mercy seat. What about our high priest? Could I ask you to appreciate Hebrews 6.19? It says something about where he has gone. It says, "...which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." You noticed it with me, didn't you? Our high priest has also passed through the veil. He is in fact very much in the presence right now of His heavenly Father. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, reigning over His kingdom. He has entered through that veil, you see. Not only is that a tremendous appreciation concerning what our high priest has done, it does bring us to lesson number four. Yet another lesson to think about the blessedness of this veil and what has happened concerning it. Not only did our high priest enter, could I ask that we pause for a moment to reflect on this. Under the Old Testament era, the high priest and he alone was permitted by God to enter into that most holy place. In fact, the penalty was death if anybody else did. But oh, how sweet it is to think about the blessing that our high priest has brought to you and me. Remember... 
in the most holy place was the very presence of God. And yet our high priest has made it possible for you and me to pass through also the veil, if you will, and in fact enjoy in eternity the very presence of our Heavenly Father. Let's develop that using Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 20. For you see, the veil is discussed one more time. It is the case in that passage, in a wonderful discussion of the privileges of the gospel era, what you and I now enjoy as members of the body of Christ, this description is found. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And there we find that you and I too are privileged to enjoy access. Verse number 19 said, We can even do so with boldness. Do you remember the timidity that often described the characteristic entrance of the priests? They must have been somewhat fearful. Do I have the right measure of blood? Do I have all the other features and attributes required? And yet you and I with boldness can enter in through this veil, if you will, into the very presence of God. Aren't you thankful to be a Christian? That with boldness you can come before God and He has promised that your prayers will be heard and you can look forward to being with Him forever in heaven. That's almost breathtaking, isn't it? You may notice in light of that, Philippians 3 verse 20, perhaps as an additional commentary on this, reminds us that you and I as Christians have citizenship, papers in heaven. Our citizenship is not here. We look for a better place than this one. Our citizenship is in heaven. No wonder Paul with such excitement could in fact with directness make that statement and encourage the Philippian brethren to also understand that same truth. For didn't Paul also say, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain... Philippians 1, verses 20 and following. Lesson number 4 has truly been profound. But it does bring us to lesson number 5. This veil of which you and I just read in chapter number 10. Verse number 20 again says, By a new and living way. This new means, this new veil you see, is not an old dead inanimate thing like that veil of the former day. It says this veil is related to the flesh of Christ. I wonder how that old priest entered into the most holy place. Well, we know how he did it. Somehow he had to pull that veil aside and walk through to get to where that Ark of the Covenant was. What's the thoroughfare, the channel by which you and I can come into God's presence now? The text says it has to do with the flesh of Jesus. Isn't it still true that you and I could put all that together with relative ease? Jesus went to the cross and He paid for my sins and yours. You and I ought to have been the ones crucified there. You and I were the ones guilty of sin. You and I were the ones that had violated God's law. You and I were the ones that had transgressed His will. And isn't it true the wages of sin is death? And yet Jesus took your place and mine, and because He took our place, He paid the sacrifice for your sins and mine. You and I, due to His flesh, then can enter in through the veil into the presence of God. Surely in light of that, could we ponder then John 14, 6, 
I, Jesus said, am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And we furthermore read in Hebrews 9 verses 11 to 14, But Christ, being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We might pause there to notice. In the same way the old priests of the Old Testament era would then take the blood of an animal and sprinkle it around the various required elements. Here the Hebrew writer says, Our high priest too has taken blood, but it was not the blood of a goat or a bull or a calf. It was his blood he took. Let's read further. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If those sacrifices at that time and the blood that they used did fulfill the things that God demanded then, how much greater is it then to imagine what the blood of Christ can do for us and with us now? It can even purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ can even cleanse your thoughts. It can cleanse the characteristic way of appreciation and thought in life. That's some profound cleansing, isn't it? And so it is. Lesson number five has brought us to lesson six. Confidence. We mentioned earlier that matter of boldness, but why don't we develop one more time with an added attribute to it? Back to verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest... Did you notice the, the adjective, holiest? Back in the first century, after that death of Christ... The Hebrew writer wrote to those Hebrew brethren and told them, You now can have confidence and assurance and boldness such that you may enter into the holiest of all. May I submit to you that there's going to be a great deal of fear seen on the day of judgment. Individuals who have lived so foolishly in this life will tremble in the presence of the Lamb of God then. For they then will recognize they're in the presence of the august creator of all things. The one who in fact is able to control everything by the very means of his own thought and word. Majesty absolute. Knees will shake. Cries will be heard as folks are going to cry for the rocks to fall on them. To hide them from the presence of this great one. And yet you and I as faithful Christians can stand there with confidence knowing we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation seven fourteen, Knowing there's an advocate standing there to plead our case with the Heavenly Father and that all is well with our soul. Talk about excitement and talk about thankfulness. To appreciate that we have an advocate with the Father to borrow the words of 1 John 2 verse 1 and to state that on that occasion how calm we shall be able to be. Because when God looks upon us, He'll not see our sins. They've been forgiven. He'll see the perfection of His Son. will be covered in His Son's blood. And because of that perfection, we shall in fact appreciate that because of the faith of Christ, Galatians 2.20, 
we shall be able to stand justified, sanctified, whole and right in His sight. Those points are all that we see again as we appreciate Revelation 21. Isn't it interesting as the book of Revelation develops through its 22 chapters? There are saints in chapter number 6 who themselves are in a very dire strait because they've been martyred for the cause of Christ. Their lives have been taken in the flesh, and they're now residing in realms beyond this one, but they're crying, how long shall it be before the blood of ourselves is avenged? Nine chapters pass, and we see those same saints now walking on that glassy sea. They're getting closer to the throne. And by the time we reach chapter 20, they're now in the presence of God, able to enjoy all eternity because the very cause for which they died has been vindicated, and they stand sanctified before God. Their names in the book of life. And as chapter 21 comes before us, that beautiful city, that sublime place where there's no death, nor pain, nor crying, they're able to be there. Confidence can be yours and mine today. How confident are you tonight? Is all well with your soul? The veil of the temple is a timeless truth about now how that all can have access to the very presence of God, but it's only through the veil of the Lord's flesh have you been baptized and made contact with His blood? If you haven't, you need to do that. You really do. The moment is too urgent and tomorrow's not promised. This very night, the plan of salvation is so clearly set forth in the Word of the Lord, and we're going to stand in a moment and sing a song of encouragement. As we do that, it's an opportune time and a very convenient one at that. Why don't we go to one final slide and merely state one last time about that veil. Entrance into the presence of God. For the alternative is too horrible to imagine. For if we don't have eternity where God's presence is, the other place is where the devil is. It's the place called Gehenna, the place called hell. And surely no one in the right mind would desire to be there. Don't you want to pass through the veil? to go into the presence of God, and if tonight we could help you do that. The plan of salvation is that which is required. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. We'd be delighted to assist you and to celebrate with you. If you have taken care of that need, and the time has come, though, that you've forgotten what it's like to pass through that veil because you've lost sight of the sweetness of it, why not come back tonight to your first love? so that you too can restate your name in that book of life and be ready yet again to pass from this life with the joy of passing through that veil to see your Maker. This very evening, if we could help anybody in rededicating your life to Jesus, we'd love to do that too, to pray to God for you. If we could be of help this very night, this is a time, a perfect time to come, and we'd invite you to do so while together we stand and while we sing.